G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast, uh, week 8, 9, 10, 78, whatever it is, of the uh, lockdown process. It is uh, Monday, the 11th of May, and uh, as we record this, we're uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, we may be the beneficiaries of a gradual loosening of the restrictions now in place in Victoria. Other states, of course, dancing to their own tunes. But it looks like as a nation, uh, we are gradually inching closer to somewhere approximating normality or a bit closer than where we've been of the last couple of months. As I say, a very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? Oh, I'm well. Beautiful morning in Melbourne. And yeah, that um, return to normality. I've got to say, as I drove into the studio today, there seems to be more cars on the road. At, I've got to say, looked a lot more like life before COVID-19 than the life we've experienced over the last couple of months. So waiting for that announcement today by Daniel Andrews, but one gets a sense that we are stepping back to where we used to be. Well, yeah, fingers crossed. Like I said, I hope there's not a backlash if we don't sort of edge as closer to life as we used to know it than we have been because uh, we keep saying we're in uncharted territory. No one really has dealt with this before. So, um, you know, all we can do is put our trust in the experts and uh, they aren't the various media commentators who've been holding forth on exactly what we should do and when. Uh, I think we should probably give them the short shift but uh one people one uh, group of people we shouldn't be giving the short shift to finally are our very very generous sponsors would you like to mention them right now absolutely and we are all waiting for the announcement by andrews but that's daniel well everybody should be waiting with bated breath for andrews every day of the week because i speak of andrews hamburgers that classic old style burger that Rowan describes so deliciously every episode is still available as it has been right throughout lockdown at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Run us through what makes it a classic of the old school hamburger. Well, it starts with the buns, the soft but yet firm um, pieces of bread on which the hamburger is stationed, uh, melt-in-the-mouth ingredients, the um, beautiful Delectable meat patties made with the finest Australian beef. The uh, lettuce and tomato uh, still dripping with the goodness uh, and uh, off the tap because they've been thoroughly cleaned, of course, beading with moisture and any other ingredients uh, you care to add to those I've just described. It is the consummate burger finding. Where can they get it? 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And where can people get the perfect home renovation? It's an interesting combination, isn't it? Burger and house. But I tell you what, 
as we step back into the light post-COVID-19 lockdown, a lot of us will look at our homes and say, you know what, we spend a lot of time in our houses, or just did, we need a bit of a refurb. And we go to West Point Properties, Nick Spartel's the principal of been in touch with Nick and they've kept working as well through COVID-19. Look forward to expanding that business now that we are seeing light at the end of the tunnel. West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. And I've been seeing a bit of Nick's work on Instagram. He's uh, fairly prolific on Instagram. If you want to see uh, some of that uh, fine house renovation work, get on Instagram, have a look at Nick Spartels' account. But like Finey said, the best place to go for home renovations. All right, we've got a lot to get through today. Our usual news segment, Life Hacks. We've got vinyl and video going back to a year of my choosing this week. And, of course, the rant-offs. So let's get cracking. On Footyology Newsfeed. Okay, well, a lot of things uh, in life, uh, let alone footy, dependent upon uh, some big announcements today. But uh, the speculation about how the AFL season will look continues. And um, uh, a few further skerricks of information to add to the blend. Um, There's been, well, the popular date for a restart all going well seems to be June the 11th, although uh, more and more people now are saying that could be a tad optimistic and it might be more like June the 18th and of course everything would have to go right for that to happen there's still some obvious um, complications one of them being uh, Western Australia and WA Premier Mark McGowan uh, not wanting to relent or, or relax anything just for West Coast and Fremantle so that complicates the plans for fly-in fly-out match procedures um, We have, hopefully, the timetable would look something like this, that from next Monday, May the 18th, uh, groups of players of no more than 10 would be able to start training together. Uh, If that happens for about three weeks, uh, full training hopefully would recommence on Monday, June the 8th. And uh, then we'd get uh, a resumption of games uh, a couple of weeks after that. So... Uh, June 18 is probably the more realistic date. Uh, what do you make of all those best laid plans, Finey? Do they sound right to you? They do. That sounds to be seems to be where we're headed. I would have thought June 18 will be the starting date, personally. Only, <clears throat> pardon me, taking into account an even playing field for all teams in terms of training. But I really get a very firm sense of this, Rowan, and that is the early games, the first... I'd say the first two to three rounds won't be as much a test of each club's football ability. I think it'll be a genuine test of how well the clubs uh, use the next three or four weeks in preparing their players to be ready to play football. So I think fitness will be the deciding factor in rounds two to four. And these next three weeks will be vital, absolutely key to a team's success, given that we've got a 17-round season, really for the whole year, is how well they can use the different stages of training from 10 players to the whole group and make best of basically untried situations. They're into uncharted waters here 
and we might find some very different results than you'd normally expect looking at these clubs, dependent on how well they use these three weeks and how fit those players are when they hit the field of play. Yep, I think the um, the psychology could be even more important than usual as well. We don't know what the sort of mental impact of this situation has been on other people. I know, I know what it's done to me, e.g., last night I was um, reading something about stuff that had happened in round one and someone mentioned the Adelaide-Sydney game and I, for the life of me, couldn't remember who won the game or what happened in it. And I had to go back to the details and refresh my memory and... I like to think I'm a bit Rain Man-ish with stuff that's happened, you know, in footy terms only, what, six, seven, eight weeks ago. So uh, was, I found that really weird. Oh, I'm trying to remember. It was Sydney by a squeak, wasn't it? Uh, three points. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it gives you an idea, like, just how, I don't know. I don't know what's done to players' brains, what it'll do to their competitive instincts. Yeah, interesting. Who really knows? Um, but, uh, yeah, look, we obviously – Initially, the AFL said they wanted to stick with the fixture that had been released for rounds two to four. That then got scrapped and we're uh, redoing the whole thing. There's been a bit of speculation about how it all might kick off. Uh, Various possibilities thrown up were Collingwood-Richmond, which was slated for round two, uh, Collingwood-Geelong, and uh, also um, the MND game, the Neil Danaher game the big freeze, uh, Collingwood-Melbourne. Uh, there was a possibility that might actually kick us off. The only common denominator there, of course, is Collingwood being the big draw card they are. I must say, by this stage, I really don't care if it's University versus Fitzroy uh, as long <laughs> as we get some sort of restart. I mean, we, we've got 144 games left to go, so I don't really care what order they're played in as long as we get them out of the road. Um, I mean, what, what else? About... But what else is important is other levels of football. What what is going to be the state of play? Most importantly, with the second tier of football and how are clubs going to be able to justify selection in dropping players and promoting players without a second tier of football. When does that start? And of course, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of footballers around the country waiting for their own competitions to start. Whether they will start at all. Correct. No, absolutely correct. Uh, we, sh- we should talk about the Adelaide situation. Of course, a major blow-up last week yep. when a uh, group of Adelaide players who were, uh, well, effectively quarantined but holed up at a golf resort in the Barossa Valley, uh, they say inadvertently breached those uh, social distancing regulations. And uh, I think it was a group of eight in total ended up briefly, only five to ten minutes training together, um, unsupervised. But that sort of opened a big can of worms about, uh, well, what else is, what's everyone else been doing to that end? Uh, speculation about the sort of penalties they may receive. Um, we're told they won't be stripped of draft picks, but there could be quite heavy fines. Uh, there's been speculation about the deregistering of players and officials. I have to say on this one, like, I, you know, I've been very supportive of all the regulations put in place. But um, in terms of the competitive advantage, I sort of failed to see how what they did constituted that much of a breach. I mean, I'm not sure how much competitive advantage you can get from eight guys doing a bit of circle work for 10 minutes, six weeks before the start of a season. Now, I realise that's not the point. And 
they had been told we have to be very strict about this. But my instincts on this one have been, um, you know, uh, that a, a less than draconian penalty would suffice. How do, how do you see it? Well, I think I'm sort of uh, refer back to the NRL, of course. We had a situation where Josh Adokar, who's a Melbourne Storm player and other NRL players met out in the bush early on during lockdown and um, enjoyed a bit of a, a party and some shooting. There were uh, videos taken and put up on YouTube or Instagram, wherever these things are posted. And he received a, <clears throat> pardon me, a pretty st- a, a harsh financial penalty from the NRL and then had to deal with state authorities also taking up the matter. And I think that's roughly the guidelines and the path that the AFL should take. I think a meaningful financial penalty, and it also should be dealt with by the South Australian police. Do you um, see any... I mean, a lot of people have sort of seen a a funny business going on with the fact that the players holed up at the golf resort also had a dietitian with them. which, you know, people have sort of presumed, well, they're clearly, it is a de facto training camp arrangement and uh, that would indicate they are trying to get whatever advantage they can. I, I mean, I, yeah, look, I, I prefer to think it's sort of, and not an innocent mistake, but I don't think it's a sort of contrived, and uh, not contrived, uh, as deliberate and uh, trying to pull a swifty as some people suggest. Look, I'd, I'd take on face value that whatever it was didn't get past stage one, basically. It, very hard. With most of the, most of Australian society keeping one eye out for people who are flaunting lockdown rules. I think we're all, as a nation, very pleased that we're not in the situation that most European countries find themselves in or that America finds themselves in. And we look on almost aghast at the nightly news reports and the numbers coming out of places such as the United States and thank ourselves and really give ourselves a pat on the back for the way that we've handled what has been a very difficult situation. So I think in this case, whilst I've never been one for dobbing in your neighbours, I think there is a justified one eye kept on what's going on around you by Australians. It makes it very difficult for groups of eight or something like what the Adelaide Crows have done to exist for very long. In other words, what I'm saying is I would be surprised if a club has got away with murder in terms of getting a genuine edge over the opposition. Do you agree with that? I, I just think it would be found out quicker rather than later and reported. Well, there there was a murder of crows, so to speak, at that uh, Barossa Valley Resort. Does eight equal a murder? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I, I think more than two. A uh, murder of crows, those not across it, is actually a group of crows, isn't it? But uh, And that's quite interesting yeah, no. because I'll be talking about a murder of crows during vinyl and video. All right. Well, I look forward, I look forward to that. And one other item uh, with the news too, uh, looking ahead to the potential resumption of matches, and that is the news that uh, the Channel 7 commentators are apparently going to be working remotely um, from a studio in Melbourne to cover the games, uh, to help 
um, keep the numbers at what matches there are down and uh, hopefully reduce the chances of anyone catching the coronavirus. Um, some would suggest that uh, some Channel 7 commentators would be better off working uh, more remotely than a Melbourne studio, perhaps somewhere in the other hemisphere. But um, how, do you think that will affect the quality of the coverage of the game's fine? No, I don't think so. They'll be getting the audio, the sounds of the game uh, sort of sent to them. There'll be, for people that don't understand how this works, there'll be microphones set up around the ground. So whilst you won't be hearing the crowd effects, you'll because there will be no crowds, you'll be hearing the thwack of, of boot on leather and all the sounds of the game from the players talking to the umpire. And that was something that we did get in round one. We got more of an idea of what the players say during a game of football than we normally get. That was quite uh, an insight and another level of intelligence that we got on AFL football. So we'll be getting that. So you'll hear the game and you'll hear the commentary. And for people who say that'll be a bit odd, it won't be odd because that's been done on radio for years at certain games by certain stations. It's nothing new, in other words. Uh, true. I'll, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it should affect things too much. Uh, as long, finally, as they maintain that wonderful, uh, well, it was innovative about 10 years ago and was about as useful in as it is now, the mega wall, that uh, uh, view of eight different uh, shots of various angles on the ground and uh, none of them big enough to be able to see any detail. And, uh, yes, I am being totally sarcastic. I've never quite worked out what the need for that was or what purpose it served. Why, why didn't they call it the Wonder Wall? Uh, I think they tried to, but uh, the Gallagher brothers threatened to sue them for <laughs> breach of copyright. That was an obvious gag, wasn't it? All right, uh, there's enough news for this week. Uh, let's muse on matters pertaining to life in general, finding. <laughs> Life Hacks, Building a Better World. All right, uh, I'm going to kick us off this week, Finey, and uh, it's a bit of, if we were still doing the Media Watch segment, this would certainly be the place for this observation, but um, I've been putting up with this one for a while and it's been annoying me a little bit more week by week, and uh, last night I thought, oh, come on, I've got to mention this, so... What I'm mentioning is now people beyond the media bubble uh, will notice that uh, newspapers particularly love nothing better than to be able to tag a story they write exclusive. And uh, one paper, The Australian, seems to do that with every second story it writes, even if they are exclusive or not. But it's the step down from the exclusive finding which is uh, really annoying me. And it is a story that isn't tagged exclusive because it's not. But all the way through the story, and uh, there are certain culprits in the print media, and uh, I'm going to spare them public naming and shaming, but if they do hear this, uh, yeah, it might be time to rein it in a touch, boys. It is the as revealed in, and it's when you write a news story and refer back to something in a past news story that your same publication has written or you yourself have written, and you say, um, you know, Joe Bloggs will appear before the tribunal this week as revealed in the whatever paper it is on Tuesday or whatever. And the other one is to publicly correct other media outlets what you claim is misinformation by saying, uh, contrary to what was reported in the 
daily sphincter yesterday, uh, this will be happening. And it is absolutely unnecessary. I mean, revealing bits of information is what a news story is supposed to do. That is why you're writing a news story, to reveal previously unknown information. You don't have to remind us that you're revealing something or that your newspaper previously revealed something two days before every third paragraph. And there is one story in a major outlet today, a football story, which I think I counted four or five references to as revealed in the Daily Bugle. It is a complete wank. Uh, all you're doing is, um, I don't know, some sort of team solidarity thing and showing off in front of your media mates. And guys, if you're listening, no one cares. We don't care if you told us a not particularly interesting skerrick of information that another newspaper didn't. Just write the story. Tell us what you do know. Stop patting yourselves on the back about we revealed this two days before. Just get on with writing the bloody story. No one cares, boys. It's infantile dick swinging. Please stop it. <laughs> okay. I like that. Do you understand what I'm getting at there? No, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course it's I do. so annoying. It yeah. is so annoying. Yes, I just uh, didn't know that it was infantile, etc., etc. Okay, I'll bring my first into play, and that is we are... Starved. Those of us who love sport, and obviously we count ourselves amongst that number, don't we, Rowan? Uh, we do. Uh, eagerly awaiting the return of AFL football. But in the interim, there's offerings that are being served up. And it started with South Korean soccer on the weekend. And I think we're going to get some Bundesliga this weekend. And I'm quickly trying to cram a bit of Bundesliga knowledge so I can watch some live soccer on the weekend and become invested. And I just wonder whether the sport nuts amongst us, and I would assume that a lot of people that listen to this podcast have been accused of being sports nuts before, are going to embrace sporting competitions that they previously knew little or cared little about just to get a hit of live sport, because I'm actually looking forward to the start of the Bundesliga, which is interesting because I don't really support any teams and I have no idea at the structure of the table or what's at stake. But if it's live, I'm going to be watching it. No, I, I get that. My son, David, and his mates have been watching the Belarusian uh, Soccer League, which uh, they've sort of been running against the global tide by continuing to play, uh, never even stopped. And... Uh, I don't know, he might be about to emigrate there. I think he's grown to rather like it, but uh, I, I won't converse with him about it. I've got no idea what he's talking about. But, uh, yeah, you do get that sense of people who just love anything competitive are going to get stuck into watching stuff they're not usually used to watching. Um, all right, my second one refers back to a, a radio, quote, controversy, unquote, last week. Um, and... Uh, I did have a bit of sympathy for the broadcaster concerned. Uh, Kane Corns, who has been pretty ubiquitous in, in uh, both forms of electronic media uh, over the last couple of years, he bobbed up on the Sunday footy show last week and they were talking about the greatest marks of all time. And he made the somewhat controversial statement that Je Jez's mark, Alex Jezelinko's famous mark in the 1970 grand final, was overrated. 
Now, of course, the way that was subsequently reported uh, made it sound a bit worse than he actually meant. And uh, I do have some sympathy for Kane on this one because, to be perfectly honest, I think when you're talking about, you know, strip back the circumstances and just talk about the actual grab itself, there are uh, quite a few marks we've seen over the years which were higher and of more difficulty than Jez's famous grab over Graham Jerker Jenkin. Um, so as soon as I saw that, I thought, uh, oh, yeah, okay, this is going to be beaten up to within an inch of its life. And it got another shot in the arm when Alex Jeslinko's daughter, Kate, um, <laughs> rang in on radio to chastise Kane for daring to declare her father's mark overrated. Uh, among other terms she used to describe his lack of respect was disgusting and disgraceful. And... Um, Kane, to his credit, did uh, get her on and try and talk it through, but uh, she was sticking to her guns. And I don't know, I, I just think Kate might have sort of got the wrong end of the stick there because the thing about how you judge Jess's mark, Fine, it is the context in which it was taken. The Arguably the greatest grand final of all, the record crowd of 121,000, Carlton's incredible comeback from 44 points down. The mark, in fact, taken during the second quarter when they were at their lowest ebb, but uh, often cited as one of the rallying points for the Blues in that incredible comeback. That's what make it the most famous mark of all time. Is it aesthetically the greatest mark of all time? I tend to agree with Kane on that score. But Kate, there's no disrespect to Jezel. We know what a champion he was, an official legend of the game. It's uh, disgusting and disgraceful was, I just thought, a little bit over the top. Interesting. Is it, I don't think people claim it to be the greatest mark of all time. It's never been put up there as one of the nominations of Mark of the Sanctuary, which was given to Sean Smith by virtue of uh, popular, I think, popular decree, that famous mark against Brisbane when he was playing for Melbourne back in the goal square. But I look, I'll tell you one thing about Kane Corns. His style is brusque. I don't necessarily always... No, I'm, I'm going to say this. I don't necessarily always agree with his um, presentation style, but I find myself almost, I'd say 95% of the time, agreeing with his point of view. I think he has a very logical take on football and a lot of what he says is unpopular or goes against popular opinion. But I actually really would say that I would agree with most of what he says. And going back to my own time broadcasting for SEN, I probably find... Kane Corn similarities between myself and Kane Corn stronger than with any other broadcaster on radio. So I'm a big supporter of Kane Corns. I like, as a logician, in other words, his thought process, I tend to agree with him. Now, I don't know what the context on this football program was to talk about Jez's mark because fame and brilliance are two different things. I must say, to me, it is a, it's an excellent mark because it's a pure jump and a single grab. Mm. You know, we talk about, well, there's a mark that is included in one of the great marks of all time that's absolute piffle, and that's Gary Ablett's mark. It's rubbish because it simply wasn't a mark. As he tumbled down from great heights above, who was it, Gary Pert? 
Gary Pert, yeah. I mean, that's just rubbish. That just wasn't a mark. So there is a, a, pure, a pure leap, jump and clean take here that needs to be admired. But I actually, I actually prefer, in a purely aesthetic sense, I actually prefer Jez's mark um, that you, you'll often see in a package of great marks where Carlton are playing Richmond and he actually sits on top of a whole pack of players. Yep. You, you know the one yeah, I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's actually a better mark. But yeah, no, what what you're saying is is quite right. What's the greatest right, mark you've uh, ever, what's the greatest mark you've ever seen? Um I look I yeah, I, I think I'd go with Sean Smith. Um I think for height the Andrew Walker one against Essendon uh was pretty amazing just how high he got and the Gary Moorcroft one. I, I think the Gary Moorcroft one um looks looked I was at ground level doing the boundary. It looked just unbelievable from ground level. I mean, often it's you're at the mercy of what TV angles picked it up, you know. Um, but, yeah, Sean Smith for me is probably the, the greatest mark I think I've seen. Yeah, I've, I've got three marks and he's not in it. I have oh, what are your three? Gary Moorcroft. Yeah. Nick Rewalt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Against Sydney. I mean, that yeah. is an incredible mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe the one, if forced to pick one, would be Michael Mitchell playing in WA. Who did Michael Mitchell? Oh, yeah. Uh, Claremont, yeah. who he played for. Where his foot, he has one foot. It's a, it's a single leap, and his foot is on top of the head of the player in front of him when he marks it. Just one yeah. foot. Yeah. It's and amazing. I, think I have seen a still of that. Yeah. He took an amazing... Well, he, remember the year he... he Goal of the year, mark of the mark. year. Yeah, uh, and the mark was against Fitzroy at the yep. MCD, and that was a one-hander right on the boundary line. Anyway, and that, um, that goal, and that goal against Sydney, that yeah, is one of the, Sydney. Yeah. That is one of the great goals of all time. But people who haven't seen it, just look it up. Talk about yeah. going. Talk about going on a trip where you don't know where you're going. Yeah, seven bounces, I think. Yeah. Um, all right, your second one. Okay, my second one is the. Gee, we're terrible human beings. We're, we are shocking. We're awful, Rowan. Why is that? Because there is example... Oh, after... Am I supposed to say, is that, were you, was that Dick Emery or Muriel's Wedding you were channeling? It's funny because I never saw Muriel's Wedding and I never watched Dick Emery, but I think I was channeling a bit of both, wasn't I? Ooh, you are no. awful. But I like you. Yeah. But, well, I don't like mankind because there is more and more evidence that this... COVID-19 lockdown is proving a boon to wildlife around the planet and to the planet itself. The levels of smog, people are, are, are reporting seeing Mount Fuji for the first time in years. The LA skies have been clear for the first time in three decades. Levels of carbon emission that we are so concerned about in terms of global warming are at a, at a level that not only is halting global warming, apparently, but reversing the ills of what we've done at an amazing rate. And I actually heard a report on radio this very morning about Sri Lankan red turtles returning to breeding in numbers that have never been seen by uh, marine biologists and encouraging, so encouraging that the endangered red turtle is set to make a big comeback, big splash in the Pacific Ocean this year. Keep an eye out for the red turtle, Rowan. 
Tiger numbers. Uh, okay, but I was I was just thinking maybe Sting can do another. What was his dream of the blue turtles or something? He can do a follow up. Yeah, about the anyway, red tur- red turtles. Uh, tiger numbers. Now there are professional tiger spotters in India as this endangered animal that is really at the forefront of most people's minds when it comes to animal conservation. Now professional tiger spotters who normally observe two tigers per week in the wild that number is up to six spots per week basically if man can keep to themselves and not screw up the planet in a very short period of time there is a reversal of the horrible damage we have done so COVID-19 not so good for people but very good for the earth and the animals that inhabit it what what do you think are the chance I've been thinking about this a bit the number of times we've heard over the past couple of months that, uh, you know, we we uh, we will come out of this with a, you know, a gentler, kinder look on humanity and we're going to be... And none of it's going to happen. We're just going to go back to the greedy, grasping, avaricious uh, bunch of uh, species that we have historically been and will continue to be fine. And oh, I'm sorry if that sounds depressing, but I think it's odds on. I couldn't agree more. I think red turtle curry is already being put on the menus of many <laughs> <laughs> of many island countries' uh, restaurants. You know, as soon as there's availability to a species that we find either edible or exploitable, we'll eat it or exploit it. All right. Uh, my final one, and um, I had to get a screenshot of this, but uh, I wanted to talk about trolling. Uh, as you know, I'm uh, very keen on social media, uh, particularly Twitter, less so Facebook, as I will soon explain why. Um, but trolling, uh, I get a fair bit of it. So do plenty of people on Twitter. So I'm not making out poor me. But um, it uh, it can go to different degrees. There's pretty mild trolling and then there's absolutely, completely batshit crazy trolling. And uh, I experienced the latter on Saturday night. I decided uh, probably time I did a Facebook live session again. So I jumped on Facebook and just shot the shot the breeze with anyone who wanted to tune in for an hour or so. And it was good fun. And we talked plenty of footy and music and other stuff. And uh, anyway, I've, I've been doing that on Saturday nights. If you want to jump on my Facebook page and have a look. But um, to alert people to the fact I was doing it, I put out a a little note on Facebook saying it was coming up at eight o'clock on Saturday night. And then just before I was about to start, um, I saw that a couple of comments had been left. So I had a look at them and here's the exchange, which ensued finally. Tell me what you think of this and listeners. So uh, the following comment was left by someone called Jim Mack. And his comment was effing flog. You're the biggest moron on Twitter. Talk nothing but, Shit, effing lefty f wit, and I thought, oh yeah, well that's that's pretty articulate, Jim. I'll uh, I'll I'll offer a response. So I did, and the response was, "Hi Jim, just wanted to say congratulations on posting without doubt the dumbest sounding collection of words of alleged English I've ever seen cobbled together in the fruitless pursuit of a sentence. Seriously, wouldn't you be better off just grunting or something? Would make more sense than that gibberish. Did cheers." And often if you're just sarcastic with someone or, or you know, sort of let them down gently, uh, that, that's enough to end the exchange. But unfortunately, that was like a uh, red rag to a bull. 
for gin at an upsetting, which I, let's be honest, that's what I wanted to do. Anyway, I went away and did the Facebook live session. When I came back, I found the following exchange. Someone actually stuck up for me and said, if you're not interested in him and don't like him, don't look his stuff. Uh, don't look at his stuff, which seemed a, a fair comment. To which Jim Mack responded, he is an Australian-hating, hypocritical, effing flog, a sea of a journo and bloke. Hope he gets hit by a bus. This country needs a lot less F-wits. And uh, then someone had a go at him for that comment, and his parting shot was, why don't you go and get effed? I effing hate the sea. He is an effing socialist effing flog who hates this country and anybody who loves it and is patriotic about it. He belittles anybody who doesn't think the way he does. And then he has the cheek to bang on about mental illness and caring about others. He is an effing hypocritical piece of effing shit. And uh, my final sign off was keep it up, Jim. Great work. And if you are listening today, Jim, I just want to say, wish you all the best and uh, the best of luck, Jim, in your future endeavours because uh, you're really going to need a lot of luck to get anywhere. What'd you make of that, Fine? Jim Mack. It's funny how people would be so... Jim F and Mack. It's funny how, how anybody would be so motivated to uh, sort of hunt down a conversation with somebody that raises their hackles. I mean... Obviously, you know, doing a, spending so many years on radio, I attracted a certain class of idiot, and it just always bemused me as to why they don't just turn off the radio or turn to another station. I mean, <laughs> nobody forces anybody to listen to a particular radio broadcaster, neither is he forced to read your work on Twitter or on Facebook, but it shows that there is a perverse sort of pleasure that he gets in reading your stuff. It must it must get his heart rate up or something and he maybe needs that to start it's a you know, it's like a a jolt of electricity for Frankenstein. He might need it to get well, to get to get going. I must admit it is the first time I've ever actually had anyone wish death upon me because they didn't agree with my views. Oh no, I had I had that on radio. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It's good fun. Yeah. Um, all right, fair finishes off. Okay. A part of trying to spend time constructively during this period of stay at home, lockdown. You know, we call it lockdown, but I don't think we're ever officially put in lockdown. Anyhow, we've been asked to stay at home, and all of us, I think, have to a man have uh, and woman have observed that. Now, I live on a property with a big garden and a lot of garden growth. And for the first time in my life, I've undertaken gardening. And you know what? It ain't a cheap process, Rowan. I started with, and I'll say the brand because it's quite good. You buy all the products from the one company and the battery is interchangeable, so it makes it workable. And so I'm using Azito. And I started off with the Azito hedge trimmer because we've got a lot of ivy. And that also comes with a little chainsaw, which I found very handy. I then needed a lawnmower, so I got the Ozito lawnmower. First time I've ever used a lawnmower. Uh, then I realised all this cutting left a lot of residue, so I got the Ozito Super Turbo Blower. 
looked at the lawns and thought, you know, it's going well, but I need a, a line trimmer, you know, to keep the lawn neat. So I got the Azito lawn trimmer. And I'm continually going back to Bunnings, spending $150, $300 at a time to maintain a garden that in the end I realised would have been better served with uh, probably a jerry can of gasoline and a match. <laughs> because every time I turn around, it grows back. Yeah. Azito, is that Japanese? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was Aussie. Aussie to- <laughs> could be anything, mate. I was thinking I-Z-I-T-O. How do you spell it? O-Z-I-T-O. Uh, okay. I was going to say, whatever happened to Vi- uh, Victor still around? Can you still get the old Victor yeah, mower? I think, I think the old Victor mower, it's like the two-stroke. You've got to fill it up with petrol. Like, that's a bit messy for me. That was one of my household chores as a kid growing up, and I quite got into it. I used to enjoy even going to the petrol station and getting the old two-stroke fluid and firing her up. And then, you know, how a lot of people associate the smell of grass cuttings with football. That yep. sort of became indistinguishable in my mind from the footy. And, uh, yeah, I, I quite got into it. In fact, that was about the closest to handyman I ever got was when I was a small child. I did hear a comedian on TV during the week actually say something, and I sort of agree with him. If petrol's so bad for you, why does it smell so good? Uh, very good Uh, All right, uh, there is enough of life hacks for this week Uh, let's go and talk about some old music, movies and TV finding Vinyl and video pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV All right, well, I get to choose the year this year, so we're not doing some obscure year from the mid-60s when we were about six months old and weren't listening to music or watching anything. We are going back to my favourite decade, finally. That is the 1990s, and we are talking about the start of that decade, 1991. I thought, um, yeah, it was quite a few years in the 90s we haven't done, so plenty of material to be mined yet. But... Uh, Let's start with music and years in popular music don't come a lot bigger than 1991. Among other gems, we had uh, Pearl Jam releasing 10, Metallica's famous Black Album, our own Hoodoo Gurus released uh, Kinky, one of my very favourite albums, Finey, by Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger came out in 1991, U2, came forth with Aktung Baby, one of their best albums. R.E.M. released uh, Out of Time. Red Hot Chili Peppers burst forth with Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And uh, for those who like it a bit more laid back, Prince released Diamonds and Pearls. However, I have gone with one of the most important albums in music history, and even the naysayers would agree it is an incredibly significant album. And I'm talking about Nevermind by Nirvana, which came out on September the 24th, 1991, and shifted the goalposts. In fact, ripped the goalposts up and put them on a completely new playing field in a musical sense. Produced by Butch Vig, he gave this album a thunderous yet clean, crisp sound. 
And uh, these guys rewrote the rule book for me. They, uh, they were the kick in the ass that rock music needed at that time. Spearheaded an entire movement of uh, talking, of course, about Kurt Cobain, uh, Chris Novoselic on bass and Dave Grohl who joined the, album, uh, joined the band as drummer for this second album, of course, would go on and put together the Foo Fighters. And this album just has killer track after killer track. I think it spawned about five singles, all of which are very well known. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, of course, the anthem of a generation, In Bloom, Come As You Are, Lithium, uh, what else was a single off that? Might have been uh, Drain You, Lounge Act, Stay Away, On a Plane, uh, Territorial Pissings, Polly, Breed. What an album this is. Uh, just belts you around the chops from the moment you put it on. And I found a great quote about this album from Kurt Cobain the other day. And he was talking about the sort of album he wanted to make. And he said he wanted to make an album that uh, sounded like the Knack and Bay City Rollers getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. And I think he absolutely delivered on that because it has a thunderous, unmistakably rocky sound, but some really sweet uh, pop melodies being sung. And that was, the, that was what made Kurt Cobain such a great songwriter. He knew a pop hook when he heard it and he knew how to recreate it, but he also knew how to... Uh, bring in the rock pigs as well to jump on board. It is an, I mean, all sort of hype and uh, symbolism aside, musically, this is a fantastic album. Certainly ranked highly in my top 20 albums video series I did on Twitter recently, which is on my Twitter timeline if you want to have a look. <laughs> Currently doing the top 20 singles. Uh, but never mind by Nirvana, finally, easily my pick as album of, 1991. Hard what to, have you got? Hard to go past it, of course, for fans of 90s music. That really is a standout, isn't it? But uh, a week earlier, another mega band, Guns N' Roses, brought out two albums. And after the great success of Appetite for Destruction, which was uh, a 1987 release... This was the next big moment for Guns N' Roses. It was Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Of course, a band made up of lead singer Axel Rose, Slash on lead guitar, Izzy Stradlin on rhythm guitar, and Duff McKagan on bass, bass guitar, I should say, and Dizzy Reed playing the keyboards and also writing a lot of the songs. There was a change, though, in the band, and there was a new drummer, and they'd taken on Matt Sorum, I think, who was from The Cult. And he took up the drumming duties. Steve Adler was the original drummer, but he was fighting heroin addiction, which, of course, would plague the band later on uh, with lead singer Axel Rose. But Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 had some big production numbers. In Use Your Illusion 1, there was the remake of Paul McCartney and Wings' Live and Let Die which, of course, was a Bond theme song, and November Rain, very popular. Now, there's a couple of songs that I love off the album that aren't necessarily big hits, Double Talk and Jive, and one of my favourite Guns N' Roses songs, Bad Obsession, I think is an absolute ripper. 
Uh, wouldn't have got a lot of play because of the lyrics, but just a fantastic piece of music from where I sit. And then on Use Your Illusion 2, there was the iconic Civil War, you know, the one that starts with that bit from Cool Hand Luke. What we got here is failure to communicate. And, you know, there were plenty of big hits on Use Your Illusion 2 as well. Uh, Civil War, as I said. Uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door, the remake of the Bob Dylan song, so a great cover there. Don't Cry appears on both albums, which is quite interesting. You Could Be Mine, Pretty Tied Up. I like that. I like that. You You Could could Be Mine. mine. Yeah, and So Fine. They're all great Guns N' Roses tracks. Estranged is another great track. So for mine... You know, you do have to sift through the two albums, but when people think of the great success of Appetite for Destruction, not far behind it, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, that both came out on September the 17th in 1991. Okay, let's talk movies and 1991, a big year for the cinema, some huge releases among others. We had uh, Point Break with Keanu Reeves. Uh, I think did that have I think that had Patrick Swayze too, didn't it? Or maybe I'm thinking of another one. Sorry, uh, City Slickers, uh, not a bad little comedy with uh, Billy Crystal, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That was a mega production, which unfortunately also offered Brian Adams a chance to record a ballad, uh, which got far too much airplay. Thelma and Louise, a bit of a cult movie and a, a favourite with the ladies, all about the empowerment of women. Uh, but I've gone for one of the absolute big ticket movies of all time, and it is Silence, The Silence of the Lambs, and uh, variously uh, referred to as one of the most important movies of all time. Directed by Jonathan Demme and uh, starring in two superb acting performances, Anthony Hopkins as the famous character Dr Hannibal Wechter and Jodie Foster playing FBI agent Clarice Starling. And for the couple of people on the planet that haven't seen this movie or aren't familiar with it, um, there is a serial killer on the loose and uh, Clarice Starling is asked to touch base and pick the brains of another former serial killer, Anthony Hopkins, who is uh, in very, very heavy confinement in a penitentiary. Uh, for his misdeeds, and she has to tap into his psychology because apart from being a convicted serial killer and a cannibal, no less, uh, he's also a brilliant psychiatrist. So a um, fascinating battle of wits and minds ensues between Clarice Starling and Dr Hannibal Lecter as they try to capture the serial killer on the loose known as Buffalo Bill. And uh, it is a fantastic movie. Lots of good um, supporting uh, roles as well. But just the interplay between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. And this movie cleaned up at the Oscars finally. In fact, it was only the third film of all time to win the five major Oscars, which are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress and Best Adapted Screenplay because this had been taken from a book by uh, Thomas Harris from 1988. And it is uh, gripping, it is uh, tense all the way through. 
Um, the scenes where she's sort of trapped in the dark with Buffalo Bill are absolutely chilling. Um, and uh, it is a brilliant movie. I, I don't know anyone who's seen this who isn't absolutely uh, uh, wrapped in its uh, progress and how it is resolved. And, uh, of course, spawned a couple of sequels, as all self-respecting blockbuster movies do in this day and age. And uh, it is a wonderful film, The Silence of the Lambs, my film of 1991. What do, you, what do you do? You like Silence of the Lambs, Wani? Absolutely, in my top five films of all time. In fact, when I talk about my favourite movies of all time, I I tend to make the mistake of uh, movies that I enjoy watching now over and over. So a lot of them are movies that are a lot of them are movies that I saw, but I've I've loved more and more the more I've seen them. I would say the movie the movie that would be number one for impact and just worth as having seen it for the first time, The Silence of the Lambs. I just, you know, that walk down the the corridors of that um, prison that Hannibal Lecter was held in down into the dungeons the first time you see him. It's great movie making. They say Jonathan Demme, the producer, uh, the director, is the master of the close-up. And there's a lot of great close-up shots of Hannibal Lecter, of... Uh, investigator Starling, right, right to camera, which are, are very much part of the filming of the movie. Now, you mentioned that they were it sort of won everything at the Academy Awards. What's famous about the win by um, Hannibal Lect- uh, by Jonathan Hopkins? Anthony Hopkins. That's uh, pardon me, Anthony Hopkins. What's famous about his win? Uh, no, don't know. Well, he won the Academy Award for Best Actor in a movie that ran two hours and 12 minutes. Do you know how long he was on screen? Oh, <laughs> uh, not long. 16 minutes. Really? Yep. Okay. So he won Best Actor, not not Best Supporting Actor, Best Actor for 16 minutes of screen time. So such was the impact of his portrayal of Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Pretty pretty amazing effort. Good work if you can get it. Uh, all right, what's your movie? My movie's actually a remake, but to me has some of the qualities of Silence of the Lambs, and I loved it. It was Cape Fear. Uh, ah, yes. Now, Robert it is the no- 1991 version, a remake of the 1962 film. In the 1962 movie, it starred Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck, who actually play small roles in the 1991 version, which is nice. But now, the major roles, that of prosecutor Sam Bowden, is played by Nick Nolte. His wife is played by Jessica Lang. Juliette Lewis, very good young actor then, excellent actress, played their daughter, uh, but the movie is stolen by Max Caddy, the menacing uh, prisoner released from prison after a long sentence for rape. Uh, Max Caddy, played by none other than Robert De Niro. And the movie centres around his need for revenge on the public defender that was appointed him when he went to court. Now, it it does surround... It does... Um, centre on a very interesting question of law, and that is when you are defending somebody, 
uh, in our system, in our legal system, the same in the US and, of course, in most Western countries, you don't ask yourself whether or not your client is guilty or not guilty. You defend them to the best of your ability. But in this case, his public defender, Sam Bowden, uh, made his own moral judgment, and that was that Max Caddy deserved to go to prison, and he didn't defend him to the best of his ability. And upon release, Max Caddy looks for revenge, and what ensues, a term favoured by my colleague Rowan Connolly, is a mystery and a, a thriller of the highest order all culminating on a houseboat, brilliantly filmed and a very dynamic finish. So Cape Fear, the 1991 version, right up there with the best of thrillers. Yeah, good call. I've got to say, I, I think um, I've got a feeling the remake goes for about like 45, 50 minutes longer than the original. Yeah, that's correct. They, yeah, I, I think I prefer the original from memory, but... Um, did you? How do you rate the remake as opposed to the original? It's funny, you know, I love the original. I'd seen the original. But when you see a remake, because of, you know, just that it's filmed in colour and especially that, that closing scene on the houseboat is modern technology enabled it to be filmed in a more realistic manner. So I, I lean towards the 1991 version. And let me tell you, the acting performances are on a par. Robert De Niro playing the same role Robert Mitchum did. Uh, they both deserves a huge thumbs up. And I would say, had Silence of the Lambs not been their direct competition, Robert De Niro would have been in line for an Academy Award himself. Well, there's two big ticket movies uh, definitely uh, playing on the fear factor. All right, let's look at uh, TV. I had a bit of trouble with TV, but in the end, I found one that uh, I remember watching at the time and I think scrubbed up very well. And it is uh, important, importantly, an Australian production. And this is an, an era where there was some pretty good Australian miniseries uh, on TV, and this was certainly one of them. Not, uh, and I must say, not necessarily subject matter you, you'd think would be gripping, but Brides of Christ uh, was a six-part miniseries on the ABC and uh, hard to remember a, well, I don't think there has been, a better lineup of uh, female acting talent, Australian female acting talent than appeared in this miniseries. It was set in a Sydney convent in the 1960s um, about uh, a group of nuns and about a group of young women, their students, and the cast was Brenda Fricker, Sandy Gore, Josephine Burns, Lisa Hensley, Naomi Watts, and Kim Wilson. Now, there are six, you know, if you're into Australian cinema, six household names on the acting front. And um, I remember being really gripped by this. It was really well done. And um, it, it, I guess it was the problems of nuns and schoolgirls in a convent, but also set in the 60s against that backdrop of uh, widespread social change and, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that were thrown up by that. And um, it also had had some pretty big cameos from people too, including none other than uh, Russell Crowe, who appeared as a character in this as well. So... Uh, six episodes, it rated its socks off. I remember it was pretty big business. There was quite a lot of hype about it. 
and uh, did very well. And in the realms of Australian TV miniseries, I think this one stands up really well. Brides of Christ. Um, I think it's available, well, it should be available somewhere, DVD, if you've still got a DVD player. Um, but, uh, yeah, for something that sounds like it might be pretty slow going, I think it was really well done. It was great, Brides of Christ, and I don't know if I should say what I'm about to say next, given the subject matter, but it was a bit titillating as well. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, well, uh, I mean, Naomi Watts and Kim Wilson were um, nice. Yeah, I mean, they're love. You know, they're very attractive actresses and there was, it was not all devotion and celibacy in the name of Christ, was it? Uh, no, no, not all. One of the, um, one of the priests certainly had issues with a, a love interest as uh, uh, the storyline that generally appears in any TV drama about uh, religion and uh, priests and nuns, etc. Just before you go with yours, a couple of other big series uh, from overseas in 1991, Home Improvement with uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor, uh, Ren and Stimpy, one of the first sort of adult-orientated uh, cartoons, uh, The Commish with uh, Michael Chickalis and uh, The Jerry Springer Show, uh, which had a real cult thing for a while. That began in 1991. So what do you got for us? Uh, by the way, I loved Ren and Stimpy and um, Ren and Stimpy aficionados. Uh, the original Ren and Stimpies were made by John Kay and Rick Crickfalusi, and they are the ones that really are the psychedelic supremos in delivering adult Adult comedy from a uh, animated perspective, but I've gone for one which is a bit of a groundbreaking TV series, and I think it might be lost in the morass of programs that now follow a very similar theme, and also the fact that a, the host might have been, in the end, a bit of a polarising figure in terms of a media personality. And I speak of Rex Hunt's Fishing Adventures that started in 1991. Now, we know that uh, Rex has his fans and his detractors when it comes to his football commentary. And his career as a uh, football broadcaster probably ended as a polarising one. But that might lend a lot of people to forget, forget A, that he was a very good footballer, but B, that the passionate fisherman who had a fishing program on 3AW that used to take the airwaves up on Saturday mornings, then turned his hand to a very successful, internationally regarded, so it was shown right around the world, it was very popular, fishing program that ran for 14 years called Rex Hunt's Fishing Adventures. Of course, his trademark kissing of the fish and throwing it back in the water became uh, synonymous with Rex Hunt fishing, but it was, in terms of fishing programs, a bit of a groundbreaker in that it took us all around Australia, uh, we saw, and beyond, and certainly travelled internationally as well. There were uh, episodes shot in Papua New Guinea, which has magnificent Finnish fishing, Vanuatu, and many of the Pacific Islands around Australia. But what it did was, it really showed fishing at all levels, uh, estuarine fishing, freshwater fishing, fishing for beginners, and he was always very keen on highlighting the opportunity to take your kids fishing. And Rex was a real, um, real advocate for the 
the, the good that fishing can do in terms of keeping a family close together, keeping youth off the street. Remember, Rex was a policeman uh, professionally before he turned his hand to TV and multimedia spots. And he felt that it was a great way to keep kids on the straight and narrow. So there was always that element to the program. But it really was, I guess, you know, a lot of people talk about cooking programs as being cooking porn, you know, watching great dishes being made, exciting, stimulating your taste buds. And Rex Hunt Fishing Adventures was a bit of fishing porn and sort of the first time that we really got great TV vision of fishing. And by the way, it really was the first commercially viable on commercial TV long-term fishing program. So we might have a lot of them now, and they there are a, any number of fishing programs, especially with pay TV. But back in the day, it all started what we have now with Rex Hunt's Fishing Adventures. So a big thumbs up for 14 years to Yibbida Yibbida Rexy Hunt. Well, there you go. There's uh, two words I never thought I'd heard uh, thrust together, fishing and porn. Yep. Okay. He was, uh, it's easy to, uh, well, not easy to forget, but for younger people listening to this, I mean, Rex in the early 90s was as big a media figure as you could possibly get, wasn't he? And as recognisable, more recognisable overseas than a lot of more famous Australian TV identities. Indeed, indeed. All right, good good call. Okay, we finish off with a footy memory from 1991. And uh, I've gone with the obvious again here. And it is, of course, the year we had the grand final at Waverley. Why did we? Well, the the Great Southern Sand was under construction. They ripped down the old Southern Stand after the 1990 final series and spent all of 1991 building a new stand. And that's why you see uh, one of the great marks by Brett Allison in 91 taken against a backdrop of construction at the MCG. But uh, they had to move the grand final to Waverley. And uh, it's fair to say it's probably lodged in people's memories for things other than the actual game, which Hawthorne won very comfortably against West Coast. But uh, I speak, of course, of the infamous Angry Anderson performance of Bound for Glory in the Batmobile, or uh, I don't know if it actually was the Batmobile, but a hotted up car with Australian flags painted on it and Angry delivering Bound for Glory to a slightly amused cavalcade of leading athletes, um, which featured... uh, Lisa Ondiecki and her husband at the time, who were pissing themselves there uh, as Angry belted outbound for glory. We had the less than captivating vision of fireworks during a um, uh, uh, overcast Saturday afternoon in September, which uh, was interesting. Didn't quite sort of develop into the pyrotechnics you might expect of fireworks as tends to happen if they're released during the day. I don't know what they were thinking there. And uh, have a look at some of the other extraneous stuff going on, and it's all um, pretty quaint looking now. I don't know why I remember this, but they kept putting the camera on a group of young supporters, and there was one West Coast supporter and a Hawthorne supporter. And after the game, they're playing the Hawthorne theme song, and you see the West Coast supporter bopping away to the Hawthorne theme song. So uh, not exactly 
how you expect the supporter of a losing side to react after his team's been belted in a grand final. But there you go, lots of oddities about 1991, and uh, one of them was the only grand final to be played outside the MCG between 1946 and today. So for that, if nothing else, it uh, stands up as a remarkable moment in football history. What's yours? Yeah, sure as hell was memorable. Mine is... Uh, for many St Kilda supporters, sorry for being a bit St Kilda-centric, but one of the most famous St Kilda games ever. At the time, it was St Kilda's greatest ever victory, but Round 7, 1991, will forever be known as Plugger's comeback game because Tony Lockett had not appeared yet in season 1991. And by Round 7, St Kilda were at home to Adelaide, Adelaide in their first ever season. In fact, Adelaide was just above St Kilda on the ladder as they head into this game. Both teams, I think, having played six, won three, lost three. Adelaide with the slightly better percentage. But Moorabbin was packed with St Kilda supporters, eagerly awaiting the return of Plugger. And it was a famous start to the game because the umpire bounced the ball. I think it might have been a young Lazar Vidovic in the ruck, got the tap out. It was gathered by Nicky Winmar, and just made to order, he just delivered the perfect pass straight onto the chest of Tony Lockett. The stand erupted, and St Kilda was away. This was a game in which famously Adelaide coach Graham Corns mercilessly removed Danny Hughes just before half time, whilst Danny Hughes was actually standing on the mark as Tony Lockett ran rampant. I think uh, just about to kick his ninth goal just before half-time. And shamefully, Danny Hughes had to do the long walk off the field in front of where I was positioned, the animal enclosure, to much derision as Tony Lockett would go on to kick 12 goals six. St Kilda finally won the game 24-18 to four goals seven. It was St Kilda's greatest win ever at that time. 131 points, only superseded by a win uh, of 139 points some years later against Brisbane. But it was a famous day and probably St Kilda's greatest ever day at Moorabbin, certainly their greatest ever win, the celebratory return of Plugger to football with 12 goals six. It was a a powerful unit. I can't remember how I came across this story, but uh, I was... Later that year, I was doing something about Adelaide. It was certainly a big wake-up call for them. But there was this story which several people swore was true, and that is that after Danny Hughes was taken off plugger, Nigel Smart had to go and pick him up, and Cornsey uh, gave him the instruction to play him close, you know, don't let him get away from you. He was pretty pissed off about what had happened. And Nigel began tugging on Plugger's jumper and pulling him back when he went for a, a, a lead. And Plugger, this is within, you know, sort of two minutes of him standing Tony Lockett, and Plugger's turned around and said to Nigel Smart, you do that again and I'll effing kill you. Whereupon Nigel Smart replied, I only need to be told once, Tony. <laughs> That's great. Oh, no, it's, 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 I, for several people have sworn on their lives that that is actually the exchange that occurred. So <laughs> it was a 
he was a very intimidating figure. No what, question about that. What else could you say? Because he was the one thing was he was very quiet on the field. So if he actually said that to you, he would have meant it. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, ask uh, Tony Malakellis a couple of years later out at Waverley. Oh, Brad Fox. Oh, indeed. Uh, or, or, or next year. Or, or Rick Kennedy or. Caven from Sydney. Or Peter Caven, yep. <laughs> there are plenty yes, of true. There are or, or a couple of St Kilda players during intra club games. So there are plenty of yes. people who can attest uh, to what we just said. All right, good call. Good memories from 1991, the best of music, movies, TV, and a footy memory to finish it off. Let's do some ranting, Finey. On Footyology. The rant off. All right, Friday. Well, there are some weeks lately I've had trouble finding enough to be uh, suitably animated about, but not this week because there was something going on in Melbourne town yesterday which was absolutely bizarre and it got me thinking and it got me writing a little rant about it. Are you ready to hear it? I'm looking forward to it because I think I know what you're talking about. Let's go with one, well, count me in. one two and three. I'm pissed off with conspiracy theorists, Finey. It used to be that the most popular madcap theories as to why major events were or weren't happening were at least comprehensible. But these days they involve so many disjointed threads going in multiple directions, but apparently still leading to one supposedly obvious conclusion, that a diagram would look like the yarn of that footy jumper I attempted to knit for myself when I was six. I preferred those simpler times when it was stuff like, you know, Harold Holt not really having drowned but instead being picked up off the Portsea back beach by a Chinese submarine. Or Elvis Presley being spotted in a variety of 7-Elevens long after his supposed demise. But how do you even make sense of the multitude of evils our various governments, the media, probably even the AFL, are supposed to be up to in 2020? Take that protest yesterday outside State Parliament in Melbourne. Now, firstly, I'd like to, on behalf of all Victorians, offer a big thanks to those couple of hundred people on the steps of Parliament for contravening the social distancing requirements and thus not only endangering themselves, but increasing the chances of a spike in coronavirus cases. And with it, the possibility will have to go on even longer with the very situation they were whinging about. So what was it all about? Well, I think it was ostensibly a demonstration against Victoria's allegedly draconian lockdown laws. But to be honest, it was that it was that hard to tell what it was about. Because as well as various placards and chants complaining about that, there was a whole assortment of gripes about vaccinations, the 5G phone network and the Illuminati, as well as calls for Bill Gates to be arrested. And that wasn't even factoring in arguably the biggest issue of the lot, which, as we all know, has been Sam Newman not being able to play golf for the past couple of months. Why is it that conspiracies these days have to come as some sort of package deal, like a KFC family hamper? You can see their minds ticking over as they scour the various Facebook pages of their favourite fringe groups. Thank you, Mr Internet. Could I please have a large 5G rotting our brains take, a side order of Pizzagate, a small Illuminati thesis and a family-sized Jet fuel can't melt steel beams, so 9-11 was an inside job video. The scary thing is, that's really only the tip of the iceberg. And there's still thousands of those around too, Finey, because as we all know, climate change is also a gigantic hoax. One of the placards at yesterday's protest sported no fewer than 22 separate conspiracy theories, 
each with its own hashtag, no less. Now, if you think I'm making this up, check out my Twitter feed. There's actually a picture of it. The doozy of them all was ritual child sacrifice. Now, I've got no idea what that one was about, but someone did point out to me that it could potentially be a reference to the Catholic Church. But connecting the thousands of dots of contemporary conspiracy theories just isn't that easy. I do think one of my Twitter followers might have nailed it, though, Finey. He said that if I actually did my own research, which appears to be a popular suggestion by these people, I'd realise that it was, in fact, Bill Gates putting 5G into the fluoride in our water supply, thus creating the coronavirus and forcing people to have a mobile phone injected intravenously. I'm not sure about you, Finey, but that sounds pretty damn plausible to me. Suddenly it's all making sense. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just ask Dr. Facebook and Professor YouTube. They were onto this stuff years ago. Oh, Rowan, you've hit a hole in one and certainly struck a chord with me. Well done, mate. I am, look, I despair because unfortunately conspiracy theorists and their supporters, uh, their supporters generally, well, what's happen- what happens is on YouTube, somebody with too much time on their hands comes across a not all that slick video presentation with a very serious uh, narrator presenting the most ridiculous of theories. And what it does is, and unfortunately, there are people I know that have been drawn into this, which is so disappointing for me. It allows stupid people to pretend they're intelligent or make stupid people think they're intelligent by presenting an alternate view to something that is accepted or taken as a given. And they believe that the alternative theory could only come from the minds of uh, a superior mind. In fact, what it does for clear-thinking people is confirm my greatest fears that some people I know are idiots and it just it doubles down on that fact I love the way that every time someone um, proposes one of these things on social media to me and has a go at me about what I've said they always say do your own research well uh, no thanks when it comes to matters science and medicine I'll be listening to people actually qualified in those fields. Yeah, yeah. A, pas- uh, a pathetic slideshow and a narrator won't change my mind. Yes. I, if, if you've All got right. if you've got two hours to waste, have you ever seen the one on Paul McCartney being a fake Paul McCartney? That the real. Oh, Paul- was that when? Oh, the Paul is dead uh, thing that went on. Yeah, but they expand on that for two hours, and it's the greatest piffle of all time. No, I don't think I have got two, those two hours to waste. All no. right, are you ready to go? I am. Okay, three, two, one, rant. We are about to emerge from our caves as lockdown turns back to stages two and one and hopefully a return to normality as we knew it pre-COVID-19. But be prepared for what appears once the bans are lifted. I ask you this, have you put on a few extra pounds, spending it at home, preparing meals for the family and dipping in yourself? I know I have. Women, uh, I know my wife hasn't been able to get her weekly dose of manicuring and her nails are surprisingly human and less glossy or pretty than they used to be. Shock horror, my wife's got grey hair. 
I didn't really know until COVID-19 lockdown and the fact that she couldn't get to the hairdresser. In fact, there are a lot of things that haven't been able to be done to maintain our exterior beauty. Botox shots have gone untaken. Wrinkles are appearing again on people's foreheads. Lips that were plump and luscious are now withering back to their normal size. Big biceps pumped up by days in the gym are simply arms that were supposed to be. And those huge calves on legs of personally trained aficionados are back to just normal legs. So as we reappear from our caves, our real selves will be shown. Maybe a little bit fatter, a little bit greyer, a little bit more wrinkled and a little less muscly. God knows, are we going to be able to handle our real selves? I suggest put away the mirrors until you're able to do so. Uh, Yes, very, very well said. And this is where we have some natural advantages here. Yes, Uh, yes, we're we're, we're good here. Well, we're beyond repair and we're two people who I think it's fair to say take uh, very little, if no, pride in our personal appearance. So um, we're going to appear from our caves exactly as we went into them. Much as we went in. ugly. Yes, that's is that a plus? Good. I'm I'm glad to think it is. No, I like that one. Well done. Uh, All right. That just about brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Uh, How about plugging those wonderful sponsors for us again, Finey? Well, when we do come out of the caves, we are still going to be able to go to our favourite hamburger place, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, the wonderful Andrews. And don't forget, if it's a rebuild or a brand new house you're after in the inner southeastern Melbourne area, there's only one place to go to, West Point Properties. A big thank you to Nick Spartels. And a big thank you to you also, our loyal listening audience. Appreciate your support during these difficult times. We're going to keep coming to you from our remote locations, hopefully soon after a favourable announcement or two, back to recording this the way we have in the past. Uh, Stay safe, everyone. Wash your hands, all that stuff we've been saying for months on end now. Uh, We'll catch you next week.